Taking time to rest, time to refresh, no stress To the city point Giving him your best, nothing like the rest Passing every test, you know he's the one, yeah Taking time to rest, time to refresh, no stress To the city point Giving him your best, nothing like the rest Passing every test, you know he's the one, yeah Taking time to rest, time to refresh, no stress To the city point Giving him your best, nothing like the rest Passing every test so yo, I'm gonna be uh, doing something a little bit different for this last uh, message of this series. Uh, if you've missed any parts of the series, I invite you to go back. There are they are all archived on our YouTube channel. Uh, and matter of fact, it is a great way for me to great moment for me to pause and plug subscribing to our YouTube channel if you don't already. Um, please go ahead and do that. But if you've missed any of our sermons uh, throughout this series, Jay-Z, Du Bois, and the Book of Acts, you can go back, you can catch them archived on YouTube. They're also saved on Facebook as well. Um, and so this is our fourth installment and it, it is not a difficult concept to grasp. It is a challenging concept, I think, for some of us to practice, right? Uh, to understand the theory is one thing, to actually decide to be selfless and to practice it is another. And so that is exactly the place that I am pushing us as a congregation is, hey, let is, let's consider all that we can do if we were to set ourselves aside, be selfless and think about the possibilities within the whole. So that's what I've been talking about throughout the month. And I have been leveraging Jay-Z, W.E.B. Du Bois, and also the book of Acts and where they intersect with one another on these ideas of cooperative economics. Uh, so I've been talking about that for the last three weeks. Today, I wanna just kind of drive it home um, by just answering some questions related to cooperative economics and the whys behind it, kind of like the biblical truth behind it, and just let you listen in as I respond to these questions. And that's gonna be our message for today rather than how I've approached the last three weeks where they have been sermons. So, um, so I'm gonna jump into it after a word of prayer and then we'll, uh, we'll get right into it. Lord, thank you for giving, um, giving us the chance to, to hear your word. I thank you for the chance to preach your word. I pray that you will allow me to do it with power, with courage and with conviction. Um, I pray that as I presented in, uh, in, uh, in an unconventional way that you will meet us still. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'll meet y'all on the other side in a sec. So to the question, what sparked uh, my interest in cooperative economics? I think that's a fantastic question um, that you raised. So for me, it goes back to my first year in seminary, right? Very first year in seminary, I had this class. My professor was Dr. Uh, Reginald Blunt at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. And for the first time, I remember uh, coming, becoming aware of mutual aid societies that the black church was engaging in uh, back in the late 1700s. So my first time coming into contact with that through some readings that we were doing in class. And I remember Dr. Blunt talking about how much this was 
a frequent practice in uh, in the beginnings of the black church. For those who are not familiar, even with this this term like black church, like what is that? I thought there's only one church. Well, actually, there is some significance to the black church. Right. So so the black church comes out of this two things. Right. There has always been a different interpretation and kind of uh, theological understanding that black folks, particularly those who were enslaved, had about the uh, the Christian faith. Right. And so while the faith that was practiced uh, on American soil during that time, and one could even argue continues to be practiced this way on American soil today, was really wrapped up in nationalism and white supremacy, uh, such that it even supported that institution of slavery. The enslaved, however, would have their own church services that were um, out in, as, as uh, Toni Morrison would describe it, as the clearing, right? Um, out away from the plantation when they were given time to be able to do this. And this is when they, um, this is when um, the black preacher would preach to them. And oftentimes it was just a field preacher, right? This is not somebody that has had a chance to study or go to seminary and these kinds of things, but somebody that has uh, indeed been anointed by God to preach this gospel. And so there was this mix of um, African culture um, as well as Christianity as they understood it. Right. So when they read the Bible, they saw themselves in Israel or when they heard the stories from the Bible, I should say they saw themselves in the people of Israel who were enslaved by the Egyptians who were praying for God to deliver them and who God promised to deliver and God did deliver through a mighty hand. And that deliverance came through crossing the Red Sea. And then later their deliverance came through crossing the Jordan River. And so for them, they also saw uh, this symbolism, right? Connecting to their reality that their uh, freedom was on the other side of a crossing, right? Whether it is uh, crossing this Mason-Dixon line, crossing over into Canada, um, uh, crossing over the river. These are, are things that connected to them, to them very well. And so um, it is in the late 1700s, we get um, Absalom Jones and Richard Allen. They are uh, in a very typical fashion ordered to worship in, um, in the, the balcony of the church. This is in Philadelphia. What often would happen, whether we're talking about northern cities or even in the south, um, the uh, the enslavers would take the enslaved to church. Right. Like this was a part of both a status symbol and a way for one to show one's piety. Right. This idea that um, not only do I own slaves, so that gives me status, but I also take my faith so serious that I have also ensured that my wife and my children and even my slaves have been converted to Christianity. And so they would bring their enslaved people to church, but they had to sit in the balcony. They were um, not allowed to be on equal footing with with the white folks. And so this is even prevalent in the north as well. And so um, Richard Allen, Absalom Jones decides to like that. They are both free blacks. 
they decide to protest against this and they decide to actually go down and kneel at the altar in the church. And so they are kicked out of the church for coming to the altar as black as black bodies coming to the altar to kneel. And as a result of them getting kicked out of the church, they founded the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Right. And so out of that, we get um, sort of the beginnings of the institutional black church. But again, black religion, black Christianity has already been practiced for over 100, 150 years in this country. And also there were Africans who were already Christians in the Congo um, in Africa. And so this that's a little bit of background on the black church. And so a part of what they are doing, I learned in my class, is that they were um, they were practicing mutual aid. Essentially, there was no public safety net at the time or social safety net at the time. So if you fell on hard times, you had to depend on people in like who were in your family or who cared for you. And so the church was functioning in this way. If somebody's house burned down, like you as a part of the community, as part of this church community, you help them rebuild. If somebody passes away and there is no money that the family has for burial, then you pull money together and you pull money to, together to funeralize and bury that person and also to support the new uh, the new widow or widower if they need that help and support. And so I was really uh, just taken by this idea of mutual aid and cooperation happening in the in the early black church. And I, I contrasted it with what I knew to be true about like the present day church, whether we're talking about black, white, Asian, Latinx, uh, Indian, wh wh whatever form of church we want to talk about, like in America, like it is generally not about mutual aid. Like it is about um, production. It is about more so about having a good time rather than getting into good trouble. And so as I sat back and thought about this, like I longed and I yearned for some kind of return to this kind of church. So I would say that that is like the first um, the first uh, inkling that I had about cooperative economics. And so fast forward to me being in this master's program uh, in public ministry at Garrett when I was getting ready for my senior thesis project. I started thinking about low black home ownership rates, right? And I was I was playing around trying to figure out is there a theological response to um, low black home ownership rates in the country, right? Like, is there some kind of theological response? And so, as I'm doing research around this, I discovered that one of the main factors behind low black home ownership rates is uh, lack of access to down payment funds. So it was that and it was also um, um, low credit. And so I pulled, put those two things with what I had learned earlier about the mutual aid that the black church used to practice. And I started wondering, like, if there was space for us to re-engage those kinds of practices to solve this problem. Right. Five thousand, seven thousand dollars, which is kind of typical what people end up needing or being short when it comes to down payment for purchase of a house. Um, 
I started thinking about, all right, five to $7,000, that's not nothing, right? That's actually, for some people, it's a significant amount of money, like when you're short that amount to just come up with that. Like you can't just, um, just go like do a little side hustle real quick and come up with that money. It takes some time to be able to clear that kind of additional money. And so I started thinking about, yeah, it's a lot of money for an individual, but when you put a lot of people together, $5,000, $7,000 is not enough. It is not a lot of money, right? 20 people putting up $250 each, there's your $5,000 right there, right? And so I started imagining, like, what if we were to engage in the way that we have seen the church operate in the past, if we were to kind of function in some of those patterns, could we begin to solve some of these problems around low home ownership rates um, by providing access to down payment funds or like funds to help pay off, uh, pay off debt to help improve credit? And then by sharing those resources, we now put people on a path to creating generational wealth, right? In some cases, people's monthly payments go down instead of renting. Now they own and now their monthly payments go down. Their cash flow is better. Some of their challenges are resolved. In some cases, now they've got sort of a built-in retirement um, plan because they own this property and they can spend the next 30 years paying it off. And so in addition to whatever they're able to set aside through their job or whatever, or if they don't even have those benefits on their job, at least when it's all said and done, when they've paid off that house, they now have an asset that is worth something. And that happened, that transition or transformation happened just because some church people decided to come together and put 250 bucks a piece in and now it solved that problem. So I got excited about that. And so my master's thesis project was um, was essentially about that. To your question, what does that have to do with the church? I think that is a, a fantastic question. And I would say that it has everything to do with the church. So going to the book of Acts, and we've talked about this a few times throughout this series, Acts chapter four, verse 32, um, it says all the believers were united in heart and mind and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. Um, so. In the book of Acts, I realized that this is how they did church, right? I, I don't know what type of liturgical style they used. I don't know what songs the early Christians sang. I, I don't know if they had a long service or a short service. I, I don't know those things. I, I don't know if the sermons were long, if the sermons were short. I don't know about that. What I do know from the book of Acts is that they lived cooperatively economically that I do know. And I know that because Acts talks about it in Acts chapter two. Luke talks about it in Acts chapter four. Luke talks about it some more. I think it's in Acts chapter five or chapter six. Over and over again, he brings up this point about them functioning this way um, cooperatively when it came to economics. So, so for me, it has everything to do with the Bible, right? It has everything to do with the church because this is the way that the early Christians understood Christianity. So 
to argue the flip side, somebody might say, okay, well, maybe the church does have a role in helping people with the essentials, right? Food and clothing and those types of things. But, but we're talking about a whole lot more than food and, and shelter, right? I should say, we're talking about more than food and shelter right now. We're, we're talking about helping people purchase homes. We're talking about helping people pay off debt. Is it a stretch to connect what they did in Acts to this? And th- this is how I would respond to that, right? I-, I think it, I think it is couched under this idea of kinship. So if my brother wanted to purchase a house for him and his family, and my brother was $5,000 short, for the money that my brother needed to be able to purchase this house, right? This is going to be game changing for them. Give them the space that they need. Most importantly, puts them on this path toward generational wealth. Needs $5,000. In a heartbeat, if I found out that that is what stood between my brother and home ownership, as much as I believe in home ownership, right? for myriad reasons, in a heartbeat, I would put some money in the pot along with other family members to help my brother come up with that $5,000 that they needed. And once all of us or a bunch of us got through chipping in the amounts that we could chip in to help make this happen, The only thing left is for him to close on the house and for us to come over and do a cookout, right? It is all academic from there because we are going to make sure that if we have the means to help, we're going to help. The question that I raise is this. What is different between that kind of exercise of kinship with my brother and the kind of kinship that we should practice within the body of Christ? If one were to argue that it is because we have a blood relationship, I would push you there. And I would argue that theologically, Jesus breaks down these barriers of tribal kinship, clansmanship, this I look out for me and mine and nobody else. Jesus breaks that down. We talked about scripture last week where Jesus says, who are my mother and brother's? And sisters who are my siblings, when Jesus says, my mother and siblings are all of those who do God's will. There, Jesus, again, as I said last week, was not trying to throw shade at his people. But what he was trying to say is that the tent of kinship has been enlarged. It is no longer just about my clan, my tribe in the way that we read the Old Testament, but it is broader. We have this common bond of Jesus Christ that gives us our kinship. And so I argue that I go be, I am willing to go beyond food and shelter to help the uplift of people that are in the congregation with me or Christians in general, because I see us all as kin and I would push us all to stretch our theology to create room enough to see us all as kin, as all as beloved siblings and not just people that I see at church, not just people that my kids play with, people whose kids, my kids, 
play with at church, right? It, it's got to be bigger than that. It's got to be communal. And if we can grab hold of these communal ideas, City Point, the sky is the limit in terms of what we can do. We've got intellectual capital at City Point. We've got social capital at City Point. We've got financial capital at City Point. Think about the possibilities of what we could do if everybody truly grabbed hold of this notion of kinship. And so that, that's how I would, would answer, um, answer that question. To the question, what my vision is regarding cooperative economics at City Point. Um, so we've done housing grants. Uh, we did that last year. We did a housing grant, um, small business grant. We've done those things. This year, we're focused on the debt repayment grants, $1,000 to every member who's serious about paying down debt. Um, we're doing the cooperative, uh, we're doing the community fund campaign that is going to help us fund this cooperative economics work. And so we're well on our way and we, we are uh, beating the rubric in terms of just the, possi- just the possibilities of what I think a lot of people would dream to be possible. Um, but I, I'm excited about dreaming even further. So uh, some of you guys have heard me talk about this before. So I would love for us maybe later on this year to start dreaming about and beyond dreaming, but make, perhaps putting together a three to five year plan for building a portfolio of multifamily properties that City Point owns that we leverage to provide affordable housing in Chicago. So uh, Chicago has a um, Chicago has a housing program, just like many other cities and metroplexes have um, Section 8 housing or CHA um, housing in Chicago, where individuals get vouchers if they meet certain income requirements. And that's cool. I think about those who don't meet those requirements, but who ain't rich. And in a city like Chicago, if they rent, they are often rent burden, right? So these are people go to work every day, have what a lot of people would consider like a middle class job. And at the end of it all, like they are paycheck to paycheck and just need some breathing room, right? I'm interested in providing affordable housing for that group, the group that doesn't get served by the government program, right? So maybe we make it, and I'm just like spitballing, like we make it income-based, folks that can qualify. So we kind of target that sweet spot and folks that make too much to qualify for this, but not enough to just for it not to matter, like how much they spend on housing. And we set our rent a little bit below market rent for a particular area. And the, the way that we're able to do it is because we're not doing it for profit. Like, you know, like Carl and I do with our rental properties, it's, it's, a, it's a business. So we're not in it for fun and for, um, there are some missional components of it. We wanna provide high quality housing um, on the south side of Chicago. Uh, and some other aspects of our mission. But at the end of the day, like it is still capitalistic. We're looking to draw profit from it. Whereas if we were to pool resources together at City Point, 
our mission does not have to be profit driven at all. It can be about mainly focusing on providing the housing as the win. And so uh, I dream of, of us building a portfolio over the next th three to five years throughout the city of properties where we do that. Um, perhaps it's City Point Church. Maybe we form a community development corporation and we do it under that arm. Um, and so I, I, I would love to do to do some things like that. Uh, I've talked to uh, a mentor of mine whose church has had a credit union since the 1970s. And so I talked to him about just kind of some of the ins and outs of it. And I think that's something interesting for us to explore. I'm interested in thinking kind of longer range vision about that. What does it look like for us to start pooling some resources together to create our own credit union? And so what's beautiful about that is, I mean, can you imagine for those among us that that do need to finance cars instead of purchasing them outright? Um, that's not something that we all do at this point. My prayer is that we all will get to the point where we can just pay cash for the car if we so desire. But for those that that borrow money for it and in some cases don't get good terms from the bank, that can that can significantly disrupt your cash flow monthly. And even worse, it can make you upside down on your car worse than what it would typically be. And in some cases, debt just piles on debt, just piles on debt as you trade those kinds of cars in and you have to roll over the overage onto another loan. But can you imagine for those people not having to deal with the dealer's um, financing, but instead being able to use our credit union that we own, that we are members of collectively um, as a part of City Point. We're able to give, um, give each other favorable terms. Um, we're able to take risks on people that in some cases the bank, certain banks or finance companies wouldn't be able to take on people and give them good, honest rates. And, um, and then what's awesome is that interest that they are paying is circulating back into our entity, right? To fund the mission of that credit union. And so I think something like that could be, uh, could be extremely, extremely beautiful. And so I, I think about those kinds of things, um, when I think about vision for cooperative economics, last piece that I'll share is like, I dream about 20, 25 years from now, like when you think about the church, you think about cooperative economics and not just for City Point, but for churches throughout the country that this kind of culture of working cooperatively uh, permeates, right, permeates the um, the church culture and becomes just a thing that uh, a thing that churches do. And I would be um, I would love to be able to say like, hey, we were we were a catalyst to help um, inspire churches throughout the country to pause for a minute and reimagine the possibilities of all the money that flows through our offering plates. Uh, and the funds that um, that we would have collectively uh, as a group of people. And so I, I would love to be uh, to be a part of that. And, and I think it needs to happen um, because the future is um, the future will make it necessary. So so to the to the last question, um, why is this all necessary? I will say, let me frame it this way. 
I believe that the future of City Point and the future of the church writ large is in the nursery and the kids ministries of our churches, right? And so I wonder, I think about the world that we're going to leave to that future, right? The world they're going to inherit and the church institutions that they're going to inherit. I know with regard to the world that they're going to inherit, that there's trouble. That they're going to inherit a world with a worse environment and worse climate than the one that we came of age in. That concerns me. They are going to inherit a world where uh, democracy is likely going to be more under attack than it even is right now. The reason democracy is important is because one person needs to have one voice and not whoever's got the most money having the most voice or the most nuclear weapons having the most voice. We need we need democracy. Um, I believe God is in democracy. They're going to inherit a world where democracy continues to be under assault. They are going to inherit a world that will likely have more pandemics and infectious diseases that break out. They're going to inherit a world where people are connected very much through social networks, but also experience deep loneliness. And that concerns me. And so with that, I'm interested in providing them with the best tools possible to be able to make a life in that world, to be able to, if they need to make a way out of no way, as our people have often had to do. And so what are the tools that they need to have? Well, they need to have, I believe, I believe they need to be taught or be given the tools that suggest to them life is not about just my responsibility for myself, but also my responsibility socially for other people, for my community for the people around me, for the community of faith at large, for them to be able to um, live selflessly, for them to think not just taking care of them about taking care of themselves, but how can I also ensure that I take care of my beloved siblings? I want to leave them with that kind of legacy. Um, I want to leave them with memories of the things that their moms and dads and aunties and uncles, what they did when they brought their resources together to help each other, to look out for each other. And not just financial resources, but how they um, showed up for each other in times of crisis, how they cared for each other, how they prayed for each other, how they um, were willing to go the extra mile for each other because they're going to need to do that for each other. And, and I would I, I would love to know that when I close my eyes, when God calls me from earth to eternity. That my child that I am leaving behind in this world is not in this world by herself. 
She's an only child. But I want to know that I, I, if I could leave her nothing else, I left her with a community of people that I have taught and that I have participated in loving each other, caring for each other, showing up for one another. Now, if she doesn't have a mother or a father in the world or if your children and your nieces and nephews don't have a mother or father, auntie or uncle in the world, they have an institution that they can go to such that they will truly be like the psalmist when the psalmist said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I'm glad because they're not just going to make me feel good with music. They're not, the preacher's not just going to preach me happy, but it's also a place where the people will care for my soul and for my body and for my mind and for everything about me, all of my well-being. That's what I want to leave behind. And so that, that is, that's why I think this is all important. And so City Point I just I invite y'all on a journey with me on a mission with me to do some pretty radical, incredible things as we return back to reclaiming space that um, that the church has already operated in. Again, black church 250 years ago was already doing this. The church writ large was already doing this at the very beginning. We just need to get back. We just need to get back. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for giving us this chance to come together. Thank you for giving us a chance to hear your word through, um, through responses to questions. I pray that you will shake us shape our hearts, push us out of selfishness, push us into selflessness for sacrifice, into sacrifice and out of ourselves so that we can truly experience what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God, which operates differently than the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of this world is about winner take all. It's about hoarding and getting as much as you can. It, it has um, mantras like he or she or they who die with the most toys wins. But in the kingdom of God, it's about something different. It's about sharing with each other. It's about not holding tight to anything that we possess, but believing that they are for the good of anybody. I pray even for me, God, that you will challenge me in this way. That that which you have given to me, that you have entrusted to me is not just for me. It's for everybody. If we truly believe that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein, if we really believe that it all belongs to, to you, why do we hold on to things that you have allowed us to steward so tightly? Why, Lord? Help us to live life with open hands. Help us to live life with open arms. Please, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.